All right, everybody. Welcome to Open Pages at Mutiny Radio. This is EK, and we do a word arts show every third Saturday from 8 to 10. So uh, phone it in. We have a great double feature for you tonight. It's Julaine Lee and James Cagney, and they are going to be reading poetry and discussing the special topic of adoption tonight. And this is the first time that we have had a topic, a featured topic on open pages. So I'm gonna make sure I can get them on the phone because we're phoning it in here at Mutiny Radio. And uh, that was Ruthie Foster that you were listening to, the phenomenal Ruthie Foster. And so let's let's listen to a little more Ruthie while I'm getting everybody on the phone. Think somebody's gonna steal it. You better think about healing yourself, child. Yeah. Heal yourself. Oh yeah. You are the tube.
All right, everybody. That was the phenomenal Ruthie Foster, who was, uh, you know, singing some songs to us while, as usual, I did something new today. So I have a double feature tonight. I'm so excited to hear Julaine Lee and James Cagney, two really remarkable and just amazing poets. And we're doing a special topic tonight, and it's adoption. So the technical feat that we all just accomplished was we managed to do a three-way call with the station phone and a, a couple of other phones. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get them. I'm gonna I'm gonna see it. We're gonna and now we're gonna see if it works. So let's see. Hey, Julaine and James, can y'all hear me? I can hear you. Hey, yep. James. Set myself off mute. <laughs> hey, Julaine. Hey, it worked. This is great. So we are live, streaming around the planet here at Mutiny Radio, and. It's so exciting to have you here. Um, I wanna I wanna just read y'all's bios first. I wanna introduce Julaine Lee. This is the first time Julaine Lee has been on open pages. And she is an overseas adopted Korean American poet, essayist, artivist, producer, art curator, occasional blogger, and footballista. She's inspired by the Pan-Asian spoken word groups Mongrel and I Was Born With Two Tongues and the APIA Spoken Word and Poetry Summit. Writing has long been a means of survival and empowerment for her. She is widely published, and by widely, I mean internationally. Um, her debut collection of poems, Not My White Savior, was very warmly received with lots of write-ups, for example. Book Tribe's List, A Year of Memories, 15 New Memoirs, we can't wait to read this year. Bitch Media's Bitch Reads, 15 books feminists should read in March. And Entropy's Best of 2018, Best Poetry Books and Poetry Collections. Not My White Savior was included in the 2018 Poets House Showcase in New York. Not My White Savior is a provocative and furious book about race, culture, identity, and what it means to be an inter-country adoptee in America. Julaine Lee was born in South Korea to a mother she never knew. When she was an infant, she was adopted by a white Christian family in Minnesota where she was brought to grow up. Not My White Savior is a memoir in poems exploring what it is to be transracial and inter-country adoptee and what it means to grow up being constantly told how better your life is because you were rescued from your country of origin. Following Julaine Lee from Korea to Minnesota and finally to Los Angeles, Not My White Savior asks, what does better mean? In which ways was the journey she went on better than what she would have otherwise experienced? So hey, Julaine, welcome to Open Pages. Hey, thank you. Do you want to just say say a few words and 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 just let everybody hear your voice and a little bit about you before I sure. introduce James so and then we can get going. As you're reading, you know, following my journey, you know, and then to Los Angeles, but I'm now in the Bay Area, so I guess it, the journey is continuing here in the <laughs> Bay Area um, in the pandemic and. Um, 
continuing to write about uh, the journey. So excited to be here. Well, I'm glad you're here too. And I wish you were here. I wish you were here yes. in the station with me. And maybe someday yes. that will happen. But yes. we're glad to have you in the Bay Area. You did a lot of you did a lot of writing education and a lot of acti activism for adoptees while you're in LA. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, and continue to do so. There's there's still some things that need to be fixed, and so we continue to advocate and and the work. Right on. The work is always there, right? Exactly. Well, I'm glad I'm glad that you're here on Open Pages tonight, Julaine. Thank you. All right, and we also have on the call James Cagney. You still with us, James? I am. I'm here. All right. Well, here is James's bio, which I mostly made up for you, James. James okay. Cagney. <laughs> James Cagney has been enlivening San Francisco Bay Area poetry venues with his work for years. As a listener and a reader, I appreciate how James always finds new doors in my mind and opens them. His vulnerability in crafting deeply personal life experiences into poetry, like being adopted, inspires all of us other poets to dig deep into our own gardens of experience and to write honestly about all the mulch and flowers that we find there. His book, Black Steel Magnolias in the Hour of Chaos Theory, was published in 2018 by Nomadic Press and awarded the 2019 Penn Oakland Josephine Miles Award. The poems in Black Steel Magnolias in the Hour of Chaos Theory interrogate identity, family, loneliness, and the expectations of masculinity. Using dreams, blues, and a chorus of voices, this collection of poems examines the complexities of intimacy for an adopted person trying to find balance between two families, one rattled by age and illness, the other holding space for a son that doesn't exist. Welcome to Open Pages, James Cagney. <laughs> it's, a, it's an honor. It's an honor <laughs> to be with you and Julian tonight. I, I can't wait. <laughs> Thank you for having me. All right. Well, so I just want to open this. I, I want to pass this back to y'all. I'd like to, I'm sure everybody who's listening really just wants to hear some poems and wants to hear from y'all. So, Julaine, do you want to start us off with a poem or a set? Do what you sure. feel. I'll just, uh, yeah, I'll go through my set. Great. And um, I'm also just going to say, like, it's kind of exciting to have uh quote, virtual reading that's not on Zoom because I don't have to worry about what I look like. I don't have to stare at myself. <laughs> Isn't it a relief? <laughs> it's actually quite refreshing. So, yes, thank you. Um, so I'm going to read mostly poems from my book, um, Not My Life, Sub Savior, and then I do have, um, depending how much time we have, I'll read at least one new poem. All right. Dear White Family, you say you love me, but you voted for hate. I cannot meet you on your white side. White lies suffocated me. I believed I could never be white enough for you. You helped create this. To call me daughter, sister, dismantle your whiteness. Dear white family, do you really think 
You're better than me. You said I was the most beautiful. Is it inferiority oppression? I was never white enough, right enough, perfect enough. Why don't you march around Jericho until your white privileged walls are made of justice, equality for all? Dear white family, please say you regret your vote for hate. I will never be white like you. And unfortunately, I feel that is an evergreen poem, but I'm hoping, hoping and keeping my fingers crossed for election day. So we are down to, what I think, 17 days to go before the election. So um, this next one is called Psalm for White Saviors, and I actually wrote it in a workshop with Lynn Thompson, who's also uh, an adoptee, and she was asked us to take, you know, the 23rd Psalm and rewrite it in, in another way. So it's called Psalm for White Saviors. The white man is not my savior. Surely I will be silent in my own family. He forces me to take his white name and pretend to be white. He takes me to church on Sundays, Wednesdays, strips me of my Korean heritage. He leads me on a journey of denial. Yea, though I walk through the valley of assimilation, I fear death in my isolation. He blesses me with white privilege, only to take it away like a thief in the night. Surely I can't pass as white eternally, for my olive-fleshed, almond-shaped eyes shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in my yellow body with my white name forever. Um, the next one I'm going to read is called Consider, and it's after Scott Cohen's popular first varieties, which is literally just text from his website about using turf for your yard. And so it uses words from uh, that text um, created into this poem called Consider. When choosing the best variety of children, first select one that will best suit the needs of your whole family, that will thrive in your local environment. The most important factor to consider in selecting is the ability of the children to provide the intended use from adults. Is there adequate sunlight to support space that favors intolerant varieties of children? Consider your choices, conditions, to plant children, installed for an instant family. The next one I'm going to read is, is a new poem, so it's not in, in my book. Um, I actually think this is the first time I've read it publicly, but um, worked on this in some workshops uh, this year. It's called My First Apartment in Korea. With barely a basement room, only smaller, perhaps filled with love. My mother isolated with me, afraid of our country. She could not even give me a name or a weekend stay. After we parted ways, she did not return. 
because my memory left no space for her. My first apartment in Korea avoided the $10,000 deposit because the U.S. Army devoured it. My roommate was a K-pop star, up and coming, emerging, not famous, yet able to draw a small crowd while wearing sunglasses walking through Myeongdong. I lived on third floor, halfway up the Villa Hill. On my way home, my second floor neighbors naked their balconies, white, maybe English beaches, maybe average in their Western origin country. They can never look at me after I captured their intimacy at dusk. Rain painted ginkgo leaves beneath my feet. My walk run to catch my bus blue 143, where I learned this nonstop abandoned city, to Dehangno and Gangnam, the haunts of my budget. My first apartment in Korea cannot find my mother, nor her love, missing person cold case, unmatched DNA. The next poem um, is also not in a book, and this is called, this is about grief because I, I started writing this a couple years ago, and it just keeps evolving because I find grief. The more I am faced with it and the more I experience of it, I actually find it more um, mysterious and more confusing. So I keep writing it, and this poem keeps evolving. And I think especially now um, in quarantine, not being able to grieve in the ways that we are used to, it's um, really just very interesting and, and somewhat troubling sometimes. It's called Grief Lies. What are condolences? I'm so sorry, but failing platitudes amplified on your altar of destruction. A thousand pities cannot bring you back. Incense can't hold words for living through grieving. Time won't heal your void. Months remember your absence. Time is false, mocks my loss. Each first snow, alarm clocks announce you're missing. If time is a healer, does healing mean forgetting? Does my forgetting dishonor the dead? What does forgetting gain? My calendar contains your death, smothered your birth, our remembered days, celebrations, or survival milestones. To name you would shatter my denial, keep my misfortune unshared. It will be too much to bear. Do I have enough birthdays to stop the night from crying me to sleep? Should I light a candle, purchase a cake, hang your stockings by the chimney or your headstone? And the last poem I'm going to read, um, I guess it's nice sometimes to end on maybe a little bit of hope. <laughs> um, and so this, I hope, will give us some hope. Um, I think if there was a superpower that I could have, it would be teleporting, and we would not have to worry about wearing face masks in airplanes or anything. So um, this is called Teleporting Baby. Imagine a world where Korean babies could teleport. When white Christian agencies abduct them, they can return 
to their original families. What if their $30,000 purchase price were invested in a trust in their name? Money would grow on ginkgo trees, liberate unwed mothers and their children, smash single mom stigma, take over National Assembly bedrooms. No need for 20-week protest impeachment. Teleporting babies would have stopped Hakim Hay voting booth, her father overthrown into his Han River regime. Teleporting babies would rule the Korean Peninsula forever, kick out the U.S. imperialist army, reunite North brothers and sisters, families divided between East and West, because teleporting babies know what's best for themselves, their people, the world. Teleporting babies know stealing them from young, poor mothers is not in their best interest. Teleporting babies love everyone, not just the rich, powerful, white. Teleporting babies would rule every continent because baby silence doesn't mean agreement. It means we're planning our world domination. So love will dominate. So peace will dominate. Thank you. All right, Julaine, that is a powerful set. I had my had my mic off, but like the whole time I was like, yeah, tell him. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you claim it. Yeah, that was that was a really really powerful set. I really appreciate that. Is is there anything you want to like tell all of us who are interested about your writing? Just sure. a little, just um, to tell us a little something. Yeah, I mean, I think that first poem, Dear White Family, I wrote it a couple of years ago, because I know that I have white family members that voted for the current president. And, you know, a few years ago, you know, there was, like, some defense about it, there was some regrets, and it was a mixed bag. And I was really afraid to even ask, like, did you vote for this person? But knowing full well, they probably did. And then I kept feeling like I need to say something. I need to, like, write them all this email or something. And then after, I think it was after, I don't know, some, some big thing blew up. Maybe it was what happened in um, Charleston or something. And I I really wanted to write an email then, but I was just like, I just feel like I don't know what to say that will actually even land even half well. Mm. Instead, I wrote that poem. Um, and I've been... Um, calling voters in Arizona for the last month or so, you know, leading up to the election. And I was like, okay, other voters I need to call are, you know, people I know that probably, you know, might be a little bit on the fence. And it's just been really interesting to hear the, the, the thought process and the decision-making process. I mean, I was raised a Republican myself. I'm no longer a Republican. <laughs> Right. Um, and just to hear, you know, I mean, I know that um, it's 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 a it's a transformation, if you will, to um, shift your your views and, and such, and just to hear kind of the same same story. And I I honestly don't feel like there's any if there's regrets and you know if there's opportunity to change and you know 
and my my thing now is like not who are you going to vote for, but maybe just maybe you just need to leave the top of the ticket blank. <laughs> you know, instead of me trying to convince people, because people are conflicted. You know, they say I don't like either candidate. It's like okay, that's fine. But do you really want four more years of this? And you know, I think you know if I do talk to somebody, you know, from you know my family or or such, you know, in the next couple of weeks, I'm just going to suggest that they just leave the top of the ticket blank because I. I think that they're going to, you know, vote again for for hate, in my opinion. You know, that's, that's right. how I see it. It's not a vote for a party, for a, for a person. It's really, in my opinion, it's, it's a vote for hate to continue what we have right now for 10 more years. So it's interesting to read these poems now and how they resonate, just still resonate, but in kind of slightly different ways, but it's like, wow, I didn't think this poem would still be relevant, but I feel like it's, it still is, and it's kind of sad, too, <laughs> that yes. these poems, that some of them are still relevant, so. Yeah, I really, I really appreciate how you use your poetry as part of your activism, and that it's, it's not just for poets or readers of poetry, but you intend it for your family and a wider audience. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, sure. I mean, I think that it's important. I mean, I didn't ever plan to write a book. I really didn't consider myself a poet until a couple of years ago after I decided to write a book. And it's like I kind of had to. Um, I really just wrote to myself kind of as a, as a means to just kind of make sense of things. Um, and because I find some of these conversations so difficult to have with people, and I feel like um, to myself as an adoptee, and I've heard this from other adoptees too, that to not feel like what I had to say mattered for so many years, that poetry really kind of gave me a way to talk about things. And, you know, I think what I heard a lot growing up is that, you know, I should be grateful that I was adopted and my life is so much better. And it's like, well, how, how, how can you quantify better? Um, you know, one of my friends years ago, she said, well, just because you have an education doesn't mean that you're happy, you know? Hmm. And so, you know, my, my, part of my mission or my goal, I guess, if you will, in writing this book and having these poems out in the world was that if it, because I, I really, you know, I, I know how alone I have felt, you know, in, like, questioning adoption, questioning my adoption, feeling angry, feeling sad, but being told I should be happy and grateful. Like, there's no room for that sadness and that anger and all those other feelings, but they're real and they're there. So when you have to suppress those things, like, where do you go with that? So feeling very alone in that, then putting these poems out there and taking that risk because I I like to think of myself as a very private person, <laughs> but, you know, when you write a book, it's kind of hard to maintain that. But I thought, you know, if this can help one adoptee, you know, not feel alone, then it's worth taking that risk. And it was, it's terrifying putting this out, you know. I mean, it's been out for 10 years now, so, you know, it feels different about it now than I did know before it came out but it was it was terrifying you know because I realized like well this could this might end relationships I don't know um but you know to know you know to have heard from a number of adoptees that like yeah I 
like one person told me they keep my books by their nightstand and like they like reread different poems and like I've heard that from a couple people like they'll read the book more than once I'm like why because <laughs> you know I mean there's not a lot of books that I'll read the whole book again or you know maybe I'll go back to a couple poems but I think it's just needing that validation and needing to not feel alone and like okay I'm angry today let's go read that angry poem and oh yeah I'm not the only one who feels that way so my anger is real it's valid and it matters um and I I just I think that's I wish I wish we had more room for um anger and not and not to like lash out at people but a way to kind of hold our anger I guess if you will um, Thich Nhat Hanh wrote a book called Anger, and I was afraid to read it, but I bought it because I was like, I think I need to read this, but I was afraid to read it because I thought it would, I thought that if I, after I read it, that it would, I would feel like I couldn't have these angry poems, but it just really said, you know, take care of your anger, you know, your anger is there for a reason, and you have to face it, and, you know, it's not, I don't believe that there's a wrong there's a wrong emotion, you know, mm-hmm. if you feel what you feel, it's just how you choose to, you know, take care of it is, is you know, what could be, you know, productive or, and, and productive doesn't mean like accomplishing things, but just like productive in, in fact that like just taking care of yourself. Um, so that's kind of what I hope for um, if people are connecting with any of, any of the poetry that I've um, well, I, I've, I've had a lot of connections with a lot of your work, and I am not an adopted person. There are adopted mm-hmm. kids in, in my family. I have cousins who are adopted. Um, but that gives me like a, a really distinct view of that from what they have, you know, I'm sure. And mm-hmm. even their own views are really different. And I, I want to, I want to come back to this. Like, I want to, I want to, because I have some some questions and things that I'd like to talk about with you and James together. So, so hey James, how you doing over there? I'm I'm doing pretty good. I'm maintaining pretty good. I, I Julianne, I love your set. I love your poetry very very much. I gotta I gotta score your book coming soon. Thank you. I I love your book too. I remember the first time I heard you. I believe it was at the. Howard Zinn, um, Book Fair, yes, and I think Chongo had um, curated a a poetry reading, and you got up, and I started listening to you, and I was like, whoa, this guy's adopted, and he didn't know he was adopted until he was like an adult. I was like, whoa, I need to get his book. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking, because I I was like the exact sort of opposite from your story, because in a lot of ways, as a child, I was able to hide, <laughs> I guess, um, because, yeah, I, I not only did not sort of, um, what do you call it, have any idea that I was adopted, I also just sort of took advantage, or took for granted, rather, that I didn't look like anybody. It's sort of like the genetics of what family is just sort of completely went past me. It, it just... It almost was like it didn't matter that I didn't look like my father or mother until I got into high school, and my father overheard, overheard a friend of mine say, wow, you are so, so different from your father. That almost doesn't make sense. And I feel like that hit my dad overhearing that conversation may have 
helped my family uh, come out, shall I say, and, and actually mm. just kind of lay out what my story actually was when I was about like 19 years old. So That's have, an interesting way to put it, that your family had to come out, because they did. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally, because I was basically okay with my identity, as frustrated as I was, as angry as I was about a variety of things, or yada, yada, I mean, regular teenage angst or whatever, but at the same time, I, I was relatively happy. I, I guess one of the excuses that I heard from my parents uh, was, was that, you know, it seemed like, well, they didn't want me to end up falling in love with somebody that I may have been distantly related to, um, that my birth mother also still wanted to sort of lay claims on me anyway, and I guess they just wanted me to, to know in case of diseases or anything like that uh, where I come from or who I belong to, and, and, and I guess my mom wanted to know me as an adult, so, you know, basically like that. Wow. So James, you got yeah. some you got some poems for oh, us. Show, show time. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> lay some poetry on me, man. Sure. Uh, as I said, because I was thinking of doing poems that I rarely ever actually do during reading, so I'm gonna reach for a couple of poems and then just power at me and stop and say, James, why don't you just do like one more and then I'll and then I'll bring it home. Um, uh, the poem that I wanted to start with though is uh this poem that basically is the greatest summary of what my story is that uh, that has ever been done, and I didn't do it. It's like a quote from my biological sister in a way. This is called uh, Identity to Burn. You have to write a poem about identity, she said. Well, when are you going to write about me? When are you going to write about your favorite sister? I know I've given you enough material by now. Look, she said, you got enough identity for the whole class. There may not be enough time for anybody else to see. Identity, she says. This is going to be the easiest poem you ever wrote. Let's see. Tell them how your family tree wasn't what you thought it was. Tell them about how you was an only child and at 19 found out you was adopted and suddenly had this whole new identity. Tell them about how your mama had seven kids to raise on one check, so she gave you to another family so you'd have a better chance in life. Now, they were really too old to have kids, but you don't have to say that. You can't say how your mama befriended your, how you say it, birth mama while she was in beauty school? Miss Cagney was her instructor, huh? Yeah, tell them that. Tell them you didn't know about us, your real family. You just thought you was all alone in this world after your daddy died, your mama died. Tell them about how Medi-Cal did you a number and you became homeless, and your other family said, well, drop us a postcard every now and then, baby Jane. Let us know how you're doing. Let us know you're all right. Tell them about how you were born when? In 68 and reborn in 1999, adopted back into the family you were adopted out of. Now, you don't have to tell them about your love life. I'm saving up to get you a good piece for your birthday. And don't tell them about your brother that's been institutionalized or that cousin of yours with the plate in his head who drank himself to death after your mama passed. Shoot, can I get credit for this poem, too? I mean, look at you. So much has happened. you got two whole identities, two families, two mamas. One of, them's, one of them's gone now, but you know. I mean, boy, you rolling. you got identity to burn. You can knock this poem out in a few minutes, throw some rhymes in there. It'll be all good. Then you can start writing about something important. You can start writing about me. 
because I can't see how you made it all these years without me. And I can't imagine why you're having problems writing about identity. All right? And this next poem did not make the book, though I wish it did. I wrote this last November when my uh, biological niece through Facebook uh, let me and the family know that uh, I guess our mother was um, was dying. She actually did pass away before before um, November 2019 was over. Um, on my end, uh, I have not only by that point by last November buried my the mother that raised me, but pretty much all of the family that um, that took care of me. And I just sort of emotionally, psychically, and inner a word here, refused to bury two mothers. So instead, I, uh, I ended up thinking about where I was in San Francisco and where she was in the hospice in Sacramento and realized that was 88 miles, according to Google. There are 88 miles between us, rocks raw and dead-ended, 88 miles of asphalt poured gumbo hot, meteorite roadkill ignites into white phosphorus solar flares blurring what's left of Route 66, 88 hospice beds grow wild in a Fibonacci bouquet along Burma Shave Highway, 88 gray wolves hopscotch the distance while the dawn Sun branches the horizon like a plum. A squadron of 88 blood moons hover the interstate above a seaboard of crows, pitching eggs like grenades. 88 days have passed without incident, involving unwanted riverbank babies begging for bottles in the blackberry bushes. No matter how many flower beds I crawl into, they're not as warm as the grave of your final embrace. 88 bayous boil down to banks of salt cedar, bringing whole brotherless armies to their knees in service to shame. 88 deltas bubbling crawfish the color of devotion roses, born-again crustaceans pinching hallelujahs from the air. I am one of 88 men staring at a photograph of someone dying or dead. The person in the photo resembles a melting sculpture, its mouth loose as a child's shoestring, the yolks leaking from their eyes. I have been here before, standing bedside waiting for the drop. Unsure of what to pray for, I keep clearing my throat. We are not touching, my hands don't know you, so they hang from my arms like sleeping bats, while death dings off the elevator, holding 88 sunflowers dripping crinkled leaves. I am squinting to focus a memory having blurred into strangers. Perhaps I should hurry my apology, but where was I going with this? This makes 88 times I thought all scotch was consecrated while arid tongues await the unleavened forgiveness of the body. I smoked 88 blunts at the double-locked door of a no-vacancy church where God keeps their eyes bashfully shut. I spent 88 Septembers in solitary casinos 
pulling slot machine Bibles until one pays out an infant coughing up its own skeleton. Eighty-eight days have passed, and I stay climbing the mountainside, wishing I were a son you found worthy enough to see rise. At uh, some point, I felt like as an artist and as a poet and as a writer, I needed to turn and face my, uh, my stories. And part of my assumption is that every single other person who will ever be in a poetry room facing me will not have the issues with family I specifically do. And they will not be adopted and they will not really truly care, I guess, about the temperature of my particular issues. However, I felt like I needed to speak, not just for myself, who didn't have anybody to speak for me at 19, 20, when I'm trying to untie this new identity or reckon with this new identity with what I already knew. But I felt like I needed to write a poem for the abandoned me as well as for the other kids out there or other adults out there who I don't know who have gone through something similar. So this pretty much is just called I Am Adopted. And, and here we go. I am adopted, carrier of all stories and owner of none. At my birth, there were no storks, just an armada of perch and sunfish guiding me naked, unmoored, down river on driftwood. The name of this river flushed with butterfat, free-range babies astride floating trunks like a colony of frogs was never said, just this, the tale of how I came to be in your family without love, drunken regret, or teenage impropriety but rather a fishing trip where the big one was me, as huge a surprise as a tsunami. Imagine Play-Doh, a glitter in Vegas, or touring the Chitlin circuit as a stand-up. This was how my truth was revealed, couched in a drunken comic's side. I am the conjured one, and my life story is his big closer. You think it's easy making shit up? Try inventing a real life. You are reflection of every previous face and posture, every shot of generational juice exchange. I am just the dust on your mirror. I am the crumpled receipt in your purse. I am adopted. From the Latin word meaning to pencil in, to opt for. I am the carrier of the virus of stories. Along the fault lines stitching my heart are inherited memories like spiral jingles for products they no longer make. You are my cousin, my brother, my niece. We've never met. I apologize that every time I see you, I must renew my vows. Yet I hold the stories your ancestors are too busy with death to explain. If you can put your phone away long enough, I can recite their ungooglable stories, stories you'll soon learn the hard way. I knew your grandparents, and I ushered their funerals. I collected empty bourbon bottles during their bid whist game. I can remember them planting the fruit trees crowning your yard. I can remember your ain't every saying, 
You can hollow out the people, but they still carry the seed. Blood knows the melody, and ancient songs will play through the pinch rollers of your children's bones and habits. I am keeper of stories falling through time. I am the carrier of the virus of memory. I am adopted. Too often my dreams are full of strangers and my pockets full of someone else's key. My burden is to know everything and be asked nothing. I am adopted. I was born anyway, a kind of bastard with a rifle. You, I will have to be penciled in at the corners. My mugshot will have to be footnoted in your family album. I will be recalled like a ghost haunting the smallest real estate of your unused room. I will have to be fed everything you cannot stomach. I share my name with your father who taught me how to build a house of bottles and fish bones, but not how to keep it warm if I'm the only one in it. Um... Wow. I kept up a uh, correspondence with my biological mother when she, uh, after my story came out and she left California and went to go live uh, back home for her in Louisiana. And we exchanged a lot of letters. And we exchanged eventually some emails over the years. And I wanted her to, I wanted my biological mother's voice to be represented in the book somehow. So I took one of her poems, I mean, I'm sorry, I took one of her emails, rather, and converted it. So uh, this is her voice. This is called The Other Boy. I cried today because I was sad, but also unhappy because I missed so much. You do not always get a chance to make up time, even so God has been good. I hope you are fine. Did you get another girl yet? Try and try again. She is out there waiting on her from James. I don't know. I got five boys and four of them are single. I think I will open a marriage shop. You know, when I was young, I used to write poems. So you are an apple. Wish I had saved you. I tried to write a book, but I have trouble with my hands and can hardly type anyway. There's too much water under the bridge to keep track of every drop. I would like to get another letter from you sometime, when you feel like it. Do you ever see that young lady anymore, or did that one go on out yonder? I sometimes look back on my life, not you, and wonder, what if I had married the other boy? What would be different? You know, I loved your dad and treated him well in spite of the way things were. But I loved the other boy, too, and differently. And one time after your dad died, we got together. We went to a motel in his town. He was still with his wife. It may be hard for people to believe, but it was for no other reason than to talk. We talked most of the night. He told me how he left home when we were teens and returned after I graduated high school, thinking I was still available. But I was married to your dad then. He said, we cannot live in the same town now. I am leaving here 
never to return. And all them years, his mom never told me where he went. But that's history. I would not mess with his life now. And we, are too, and we were too old to have had an affair. That would have been awful. So that night, we just stayed in that motel for hours. We could not figure anything out. Now you know a secret about your mom no one else knows. Isn't that funny? I will write again when I am lonely. Okay? I hope it's okay. I love you, James. Rosie. And, you know, why don't I actually uh, finish All right. um, with, uh, with this? Um, because, you know, all of my life, uh, even long before this, I, I sort of heard it passing on TV in all manner of ways. Don't say sorry. You know, don't say sorry for whatever incident occurred, for whatever uh, uh, digression took place. Don't tell me sorry. And, you know, one day when I was in Sacramento, my mom actually did, whether I, I not that I actually asked for it, but she did apologize to me for my life, an apology I didn't even want. She had said to me that she was sorry that I was uh, born and sorry for the things that I went through. And so a couple of days later, I, I thought about that, and I was literally just shaving my head, looking at myself in the mirror, and just thinking, wow, I got a sorry. Um, what exactly does that change? What now that I've been paid with a sorry? And so this poem is a response to that, and it's called Empty of Apologies. And the poem has a little epigraph, and it's from a movie called uh, In Cold Blood. And it's something one of the characters, played by Robert Blake, says, just as he is about to be escorted to be, uh, to be, uh, um, to be hanged for, uh, for murder. His quote is, I guess I'd like to apologize, but who to? So here's the poem. When we met, my mother's first words were, I know you hate me. She apologized for all the elements that aligned prior to my birth. Told me she was sorry. I'd been born hungry, loveless, kicking like a fish in a bassinet. A prenatal hole through my heart as if her body were rejecting me like a plastic organ. I love your father, but... Read, I love your father, except when it involves you, she said. Sometimes, when I'm alone, apologies pick up out of me like a sesame seed launched off the lip. A directionless, spontaneous sorry, as if my brain were a generator of random mistakes. Sorry, I couldn't do more. I couldn't be more. I couldn't bail cancer from my father's body as water from any sinking vessel. My adoptive mother was sorry for her secrets. Sorry she couldn't be my real mother. Sorry my namesake couldn't get an erection for anything in our house except booze. The second time I met my mother, it was like a blind date that wasn't going to work out. She said she was, don't look at these other children, she said, closing her pocketbook. Look at me. You 
slipped through my fingers like a seed that grew anywhere. I can't be your mother, she said. I can only be... I took her hand, despite it resembling my own, realized her palm's map was complete without me. My mother made life by accident and was... You think life belongs to you until it's wrestled from your helpless arms. What word will flick off your tongue then? My father couldn't make a life stick under his own roof. All he could make was other people's tears. On his last morning, my father looked past me into a sun I couldn't see. I mean, see. I didn't cry. What might you have said? I said, nothing. My father's words were, poor June, poor June. Him having no time to explain anything. Him forgetting I never used the word junior. And for that, I am sorry. He yanked cords out of his ventilators as if pulling weeds, angry at anything keeping him alive. His fists springing wild with lures, eyes bold defiant. My father was sorry for nothing, as he was from Texas. My adoptive mother, though, on the day she died, it rained so hard the asphalt loosened and boiled. At her bedside, I was sorry I hadn't worked hard enough. I couldn't stop what, she, what was coming. She stared a thousand yards past me, past anywhere I could see, then was snatched like a fish through the hospital skylight. I was down on my luck then. The confident morning rain and clumsy whispering of her doctor's phone voice, crying in my ear like static on a station that won't come in. All right, that's what I got. Wow, thank you, James Cagney. What a set. And Julaine Lee. Don't forget, you're, we still got Julaine on here, too. So, hey, James, um, just to kind of, I, I'm, I'm interested in hearing you talk a little bit about your set and um, generally your poetry. And, uh, yeah, I just want to, I want to hear from you about your okay. own work. Uh, um, with what I kind of said a, a couple of minutes ago, um, to balance a reading about adoption, um, which, I, which I've had to do, is, is kind of like a, a daring sort of claiming statement, sort of like the ultimate I am in front of a group full of strangers who just claim my life and my story and to just go there and do it. Um, so my set is kind of based on or rooted out of a kind of storytelling that even if some of the lines and some of the, the poems track as a bit abstract, I feel like yet and still there's like a through line. And I somehow, somehow want to carry audiences in this, from A to B in a way, through in this sort of process of storytelling. Um, sometimes for A Room Full of Strangers, I kind of know where I want it to go. For example, here I... I sort of know I wanted to include in a, the apology poem and stuff like that. And 
you know, it's just kind of like I, when I think of it in terms of a set, I think in terms of an arc of of the kind of story, the kind of 15, 20 minute story I want to tell strangers, where exactly I want to start and where to stop. And fortunately, Identity to Burn is such a gorgeous way to sort of introduce people into how I look at family and what that family setup is. And from there, I can kind of like go anywhere into all manner of, of emotion. Um, and with poetry, um, I feel like for the most part, especially with, with sort of engaging and confronting my adoption story, I feel like more than writing in rhyme, more than writing in form, I write emotionally. Um, I sort of, I guess, feel a thing and try to put that into words, words that are clear enough for strangers, words that I'm pretty sure that my audience has not had an experience like mine, but I try to write and frame things open enough so that people can kind of see it and have empathy if they want it. Um, so it's kind of like, how do I package my own unique and strange story that a lot of people wouldn't have empathy for or see or feel? How can I open it enough so that anybody can kind of stand at the edge and find something to engage with? So, yeah, I, I guess that's, that's the, the answer. It's like the set is me telling a complete story with all of those poems to be some sort of like journey. And with the individual poems, it's kind of like writing emotionally, uh, writing in a way so that even if you have a wonderful, awesome, warm, loving family who has supported you from, you know, from birth, from get-go, I still feel like there's a way I can communicate a broken family that you would still empathize with and even run to your own parents afterwards to get some kind of like validation and be like, wow, you can't believe, you wouldn't believe the story I heard this past weekend at an open mic. So yeah, I guess that's that. All right. So I kind of want to, you know, I've been listening and I've been scribbling notes here in the booth and one of one of the things that you know i've got a bunch of words circled like babies one of the things that i'm noticing about y'all's work is that babies come up a lot and in a really different way than most people write about babies because y'all are babies that something really happened to and so that's i'm i'm curious about babies um and i'm also like one of the things that that i realize like while I'm listening and thinking is um well I've been working with ethnic studies classes in the past two weeks doing autoethnographies so we've been writing through identity lenses and you know it kind of occurs to me that adoption is an identity lens and so I'm I'm noticing that that might be something common and also you know as I was thinking that I was like you know, my, my assumptions about adoption are something I've not really deeply confronted myself and finding that I have a lot of unquestioned kind of assumptions about what that means. And um, it seems like adoption is eclipsed by people's assumption about what it is and how it's done and goes unquestioned and that what I'm noticing in both of y'all's work is that I feel like 
it's something like giving people words for an experience that goes unquestioned. So, what do you, so talk to me, poets. Well, I think that the narrative, the adoption of narrative has been so dominated by adoptive parents and this, you know, kind of fantasy, you know, romanticizing adoption that, you know, now that so many of us are, you know, coming, you know, you know, many of us are adults and feeling empowered to speak our truth, whether it's a risk with our adoptive family, our, you know, original family or whoever, um, that it's, it's hopefully shifted the narrative some. I think there's still a long ways to go. Um, you know, November coming up is National Adoption Awareness Month, which, you know, partly is used by adoptive parents to celebrate adoption and, um, you know, there's a growing number of adoptees who over the last, you know, several years have tried to reclaim this as, like, you know, you need to listen to us as well, and, um, it's, you know, it's time for our voices to be heard. It's always been time, but this, nobody was listening before, and I think, you know, um, for someone who doesn't find out that they're adopted until, you know, much later, in their life, you know, people will ask you, well, did you always know that you're adopted? It's like, well, it's kind of obvious that, you know, I am, my parents are white. Um, but, I, you know, I, I, the, what I hear from um, other adoptees who, you know, some will call themselves LDAs or late discovery adoptees, that it's just, you know, years and years later, um, I think, you know, you touched on this too, James, it's like still just trying to make sense of it. And, um, you know, it's, you know, and then to hear people now saying, well, should I tell my child that they're adopting? It's like, why would you lie to them about who they are? You right. Um, and I think that, you know, what James, what you were saying earlier, you know, is that, you know, trying to make your, your poems, you know, something that people will resonate with someone, whether they're adopted or not. And then it's like, you know, I think, you know, I think of it just being like digestible, you know, that no matter what your experience, if you're an adoptee, obviously it's going to resonate with you one way, but if you're not adopted, are you still going to, like, come away with a new point of view, hopefully? Mm. I think that's kind of my goal as well, um, to just, like, get people to think differently because there is this, you know, rosy picture that's painted, and it's like, well, it's not all, you know, a bed of roses, <laughs> you know, there's... There's other things going on there too for and it's and it's different for everybody. It's not like, oh, you're an adoptee, you're an adoptee, oh, it's all the same. It's like no, we all have different experiences. We're not monolithic, you know, we're mm. we're multi dimensional people too. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, I guess I guess my answer when I start my answer, I, I guess I'm going to voluntarily cancel myself because I'm gonna say, um, which is the most worst thing I could say is that in the last few years, as I started hearing, like, strange stories back from people who were getting unexpected results from their 23andMe um, printouts, I just found it insanely hysterical for personal reasons, people who suddenly realized that their parents were not the parents they thought that they had just because of them sending spit into some undisclosed location and getting this strange story back. I was like, huh, good luck with that. You, uh... 
a lot of personal reasons, I, and I guess I'm going to confess um, one of them to you, at the very least, is, you know, I've had, and I've Googled um, something similar to this. I've had so many sort of issues, uh, with, I want to say, with, like, intimacy, with, like, trusting, um, you know, women, uh, that it sort of, like, it made me really curious as to exactly what did happen in, like, the first months of my actual birth because the story that I got is that I was uh, the last sort of like um, I guess what is that makeup baby uh, after my parents had kind of separated for a little time because of some stress and I was sort of like an accidental number seven that my parents at that time were having a struggle keeping everybody that they already had access to. My mom had dolled out uh, some of her kids to, like, her mother and, and other relatives across, uh, across the states and stuff. And so when I showed up, they were just sort of, like, stuck and feeling like, you know, right now is not appropriate to have a baby. Maybe what my mom decided to do is, and what she told me, is she wanted to loan me out to this woman that she trusted who was her uh, teacher in beauty school at that time, that she said she was planning, to, I guess, to let me stay with her uh, for maybe about four or five years, and then she wanted to just come back and refold me back into her family. Um, and, of course, you know, I'd already bonded, and that was too late, and yada, yada, and so on and so forth, and five, stretching 20 years, pretty much. Um, but it's sort of like Right now, I'm kind of forced to look at what really was that, what was happening with me in the first couple of months that I was a baby. Did anybody actually pick me up? Did my mom just kind of instantly refuse me and sign papers to let me go away with the uh, Cagneys immediately? And then I just kind of like sat around and waited, um, which basically is kind of like the story I think I got. Um, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. I have to mythologize just from looking at my life and my relationships now as an adult. Um, and you were right about, uh, you know, assumptions and adoption and working with um, identity because at my point when um, – there came a point when pretty much all of my biological family had kind of – well, maybe I should say it like this. Maybe I should say it like this. In my mid-20s, just before, uh, in my mid-20s, the house that I grew up in since I was born and the adoptive parents had raised me, in my mid-20s, they had both died, and that house was going to be reabsorbed back into Oakland because of a loan situation after the Loma Prieta earthquake. So the first 20 years of my life were just kind of like erased. And I guess that kind of included all of the other relatives that I relied on in my adoptive family. It almost seems like when I, when my mom died, I guess a lot of the family assumed I died with her. Or because I was adopted, I wasn't responsible to anybody. It was just kind of like, okay, well, that show is over, and I'm just left there. And I'm like, okay, thank you for the memories. And then in turn, with my biological family, um, I integrate myself a few years, and, and everybody loves me. Everybody treats me warm and, and, and welcomely and openly. But do I belong here? Um, do, do, are my memories appropriate here? Am I actually seen for who I am? Or 
do they project onto me the identity of the uncle they were supposed to have that they created in their heads long before they even met me? So I, I feel sort of like branded in a way I claim both stories and both identities. Um, but I guess that's just fodder for me. Otherwise, I'm not really sure what to do with all that stuff. I'm, I'm just kind of like mythologizing my own life. I love I love that you say that you're mythologizing your own life. I think that's a really a really beautiful way to think about what is difficult. Like this is like the intensity of like a two family situation that and and whatever anyone thinks that's not you. <laughs> that's not the person mm. You know, like who who has to actually navigate all that? Like I think, um, the idea of mythologizing, especially starting from like a moment as a baby when you don't have memories. So all all you can do is create create your own story. Mm-hmm. What do you think, in Julaine? Well, it makes me think. I mean. Because you know, people will ask me, like, because I was 10 months old when I was adopted, people will ask me, like, well, do you remember anything from Korea? And it's like, um, 10 months old. Most 10 months old <laughs> don't remember anything. I mean, it's just like whatever somebody told you, that's the story that you know. Um, but, you know, several years ago, a friend of mine who was also adopted, she asked me, she was like, have you ever thought about, like, you know, if your mother was experiencing some trauma while you were, before you were born? And while you were in the womb, and that, that trauma I would have also experienced. And because who knows? I don't know the story. You know, um, who knows why? Why you know she ended up relinquishing to me? And maybe she didn't choose it. Maybe someone else chose it for her. Maybe there was some trauma that she was experiencing, um, and you know how that can then live in my body. Um, and I just think about, you know. I think about, you know, when you're talking about babies, I'm thinking about, like, how these babies, they don't know what is happening, but I think they do know, you know? It's like, Mm -hmm. maybe they don't remember to be able to speak and say, hey, I remember that, you know, I was taken from my mother and and all these things happened, but I think our bodies remember things, and even if we don't have words for what happened and what we were feeling are, I feel like our bodies remember trauma. Our bodies can remember emotions. And even if we don't have words for what those emotions and those traumas were, and maybe that's why, and I'm actually just thinking about this now as I'm saying this out loud, maybe because I don't have words for trauma and different emotions, you know, extreme emotions that I I likely experienced either in the womb or shortly after, you know, before as I was as I was being relinquished, because I don't have words for for those things, those extreme, you know, you know, fractures and so on, is probably why the trauma is still here is because I I can't name it in a way that makes sense. You know, I think it's different um, if I were to be um, in a car accident, you know, even there, I think there was some shock, but, you know, there's a record, you know, the, 
the EMT would have a record and there's documentation of like what happened, you know, time of the accident, you know, who hit who, you know, there's all this, you know, there's like this timeline, but for a certain number of months of my life, there is no, there's a blank timeline, you know, yeah. or maybe for other adoptees, there's, there's a timeline, but we don't know if it's true or not because I keep, you know, hearing about adoptees who reunite with their their families, their their original families, and they find out all the things that they were told for so many years were lies, and that no, their mother didn't want to relinquish them. You know, it was a relative wow. that did this. And there was switching of children and switching of you know documents and you know babies. Babies are switched often, and so um, I think if we don't have the words, then maybe the trauma, that's why the trauma and these strong emotions continue, and to continue to not have a place to go with even saying, hey, I'm angry and I don't even know why, to not have a place for that and to have that, to not have that validated, I think it just, it, it exasperates those emotions and I don't think it's I don't think it's helpful to suppress it so um yeah I think babies know a lot the words aren't always there <laughs> sadly um but I appreciated what you said earlier too James about how you know that sometimes when you're at an open mic that you know maybe some of the people there probably a lot of the people there will have no you know experience to the, you know, the, the story that you're going to tell about adoption, and that's why another reason it's important to share that is that people need, you know, people will come up to me and say, well, you know, I've been thinking about adopting, but now I'm, now I'm taking a step back and really thinking about, like, you know, and even close friends of mine have said, you know, you know, I've always wanted to adopt, but you know what, I think I'm going to just, I'm going to think about this, I'm going to rethink this, and not that they, you know, will then not adopt, but they're really understanding, you know, what their role is and the privilege that they they have, you know, as the adopted parents um, and, you know, how their choices are going to impact not only a child that they might adopt, but impact that child's original family, too. So, um, yeah, I think it's important to continue to get our, our voices out there. Yeah, I so appreciate y'all getting your voices out here on open pages. Like, this has just been a really interesting conversation. James, do you have any any final thoughts before we kind of wrap up our set here? Uh, my final thought is, is just to tell your truth, no matter what that happens to be and, and is. And, and, you know, and, and what Julian mentioned, too, uh, about myself, it's like even – when I have gone ahead and shared some uh, crazy uh, uh, personal material to open mics and, and to crowded rooms, I am always surprised by the people who come up to me at the end and tell me that they heard it in a very, very unique and special way. So, so yeah, even if I am scared, um, I'm sort of required to, to tell the truth, and that's all I would uh, ask any other artist out there is to tell yours right on well y'all it, it it i i 
hesitate to actually end this. Like, in fact, we don't have to. Like, I can I can do anything I want. Like, do you guys have any any other anything else that you want to explore on on the topic? I think it's just interesting. Like, you know, James, like what you're saying. Like, you have people come up to you that you know you you know you you're you're up there reading the poems, and then somebody comes up and you know, has some kind of connection, and it's interesting how, you know, it, sometimes it'll be an adoptee. Like, one open mic I went to last, end of last year, it was before, before the quarantine, and, you know, I, I went because of who the features were, and then I read a couple poems, and, the, you know, I, I saw there was very few people of color in the audience, so I was like, I don't care, I'm just going to read these poems, and, you know, and, this woman comes up to me afterwards and says, are you a transracial adoptee? And I was like, yes, you know, and they said that <laughs> they were too. And we've become, you know, you know, friends and, you know, it's, it's just interesting how it just kind of opened up the conversation. And, but also, you know, there'll be people that will be like, Hey, you know, my partner's adopted, but they don't really want to talk about it. But this has given me, you know, maybe a way to bring some things up or, I think the thing that well, thing that surprised me the most is somebody, another poet, I was at a poetry festival, another poet came up to me and she said, you know, um, you know, my wife and I have tried to have children and people will ask us, like, well, why don't you just adopt? And he's like, how dare they? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's just like, like, oh, just, you know, pass by, you know, this person's, you know, the grieving that they're going through because they want to have children and it's not happening. You know, I mean, I think that's, there's a grieving process there. And I just never thought that me, me sharing my truth would, would, you know, strike a chord for somebody, you know, who's, who's trying to have children and, and it's not happening, but um, I'll just, you know, you know, we're, we're still connected on, you know, social media and stuff, but it's just, it's interesting how I think, when you speak about things that maybe have been taboo or just have not been spoken, it opens up doors and it, you know, people come out of the woodwork, so to speak, you know, that it's like, oh, I guess it's okay to talk about these things because you're doing it publicly. I'm not just like over a beer or over coffee, but it's like, mm. it's okay to talk about these things. And it's like, I think about, you know, people who, you know, they do get pregnant and they lose a child and how there's, often what I hear is people go through that in so much, you know, isolation. Um, and when people should be able to talk about that grief in, in a way um, that that can bring some healing, I think, and bring some solidarity, but yet that's another, I think, narrative that is is challenged in that it's like people don't don't feel for whatever reason, I don't know. Um, I think it is a very painful thing as I've seen friends go through that, but you know, why shouldn't those stories be shared and held together um, and, and people be able to find healing and solidarity together? You know, it doesn't it doesn't take away the loss. It just, I think, you can find some strength um, and some comfort. And again, it's not to erase what happened because it's, it's tragic, but um, to, to find that you're not alone. I mean, I think that's, yeah. that's the biggest thing is to know that you're not alone and you don't have to go through this by yourself. And just having someone else say, yeah, I get it, that little bit is, is huge. 
you know, that can that can carry you for a while, I think, you know. So yeah. Wow. Yeah, I hear like a, another kind of universal quality that I feel like comes through for both of y'all is this idea of like overcoming isolation, like kind of, well, even just like naming the isolation of your particular experiences that I think resonates on, like on, like for very different reasons with your readers and your listeners. Like certainly for me, that's, that's something that, um, especially like during sheltering, like I've, I've been reading y'all's work, but y'all as well, you know, to, to kind of get ready for the show and everything. And it, it made me feel better. That's good. That's real good. That's, that's interesting. Okay, good. <laughs> you know. We're talking about isolation. Here we all are in isolation. I, I know. We're at least we're on the phone. You know, <laughs> ironically. <laughs> yep. Well, y'all, it's it's just been a real pleasure to to have you, Julaine Lee, and you, James Cagney, as a double feature tonight on Open Pages. And I just really want to thank you. And I'm so glad that y'all are writing and publishing and, and getting your work out there. I think it's it's important work and it's beautiful work. And I appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad that you're here tonight. Yeah, I'm glad we worked this out. I'm, I'm glad. I'm very, very glad to... Uh... I've been able to be a part of the show and and love and thank you uh julian because your work is absolutely awesome and uh, and much love to you both well thank thank you both i'll tell you james when when ek contacted me and you know said hey would you do this reading and it will be with james Cagney. i was like i mean ek has it you know i was like i would love to <laughs> you know because i was like i mean of course you you know, a reading about, you know, with adoption is a theme, but to be able to do it with you, um, it's, you know, I mean, I, I know a lot of people are like, well, I have, this is my dream, you know, publication or my dream reading or whatever. And it's like, if I had one, it would be this, because I, I really feel like your, um, your, your book and your, your work is just, it's very unapologetic and you go places that are difficult, but I think necessary. And I, I hope, I, I mean, I can't wait to, like, share this, um, this, this show tonight because I know there's a lot of other um, late discovery adoptees out there who I think, I mean, they know they're not alone because we've connected on social media, but I think, you know, my experience is different than theirs. And to be able to hear um, someone else's experience who, you know, also found out later, I think is, is very important. So, um, yeah. Thank you, thank you both for for tonight. This is, this is and thank you too. Thank you too. Well, I think that when when the day comes where we can all like uh, show up and share microphones and and hug, that perhaps we're gonna have to do like a reboot on this show when when I can get y'all into the studio and we can be here together. That would be really awesome. I think to do a live show. Yeah, I'm down with that. So. Yeah. Great. It's practically planned. <laughs> we just okay. have to like wait for the future to come. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, thank you so much, y'all. I am 
I'm going to put on some music now, and you've been listening to Julaine Lee, author of Not My White Savior, and James Cagney, author of Steel Bla- Black Steel Magnolias in the Hour of Chaos Theory, right here on Open Pages at Mutiny Radio. So let's just take a little musical break before we open up the open mic. So I've got I've got something special ready to spin for you here. Um, I got this CD for free. It's it's Brittany Howard, and I'm sure everyone's heard of Brittany Howard, so I don't really have to explain. But if you haven't, you're about to, and you're gonna be like, "Wow, I love Brittany Howard."
All right, everybody. That was Brittany Howard, and you are listening to Open Pages at Mutiny Radio. And we are streaming, streaming around the planet from the Mission District of San Francisco, California. And we have actually entered the open mic portion of the evening. And the phone has not rung yet, so I remain hopeful. If you would like to call in and read a poem, the number here is 415-550-0511. Now, I think while we're waiting, I am going to I'm going to read a poem. I cleverly cleverly forgot to bring a poem last month, which, you know, these things happen, I suppose. So I made sure to bring something today, and I have been doing a lot of writing with my students. I'm working with a writing class and working with the ethnic studies classes, writing autoethnographies. And so um, I'm actually reading out of my teaching writing notebook today, which hardly ever happens, but um, I'm, I'm feeling like reading this poem, even though it's quite different from Julian and James' work, but, you know, it's kind of thinking about, like, family history, and that's, I guess, where the, the resonance comes for me, so this is what I want to share this evening. Lies that pass as history are the worst kinds of lies because they linger like flies on rotten meat, maggoty thoughts eating into the brains of young people who grow up and don't know that they're lying to children who grow up and don't know that they lie to children who grow up and don't know it's true or how to even recognize an honest face. But I'm learning truth by reading history that doesn't tell only one side of the story. I can't help think of genocide, forced enslaved labor, people expendable, thrown away casually as wiping up water with a paper towel, a waste. It's confusing. See me now, the look on my face, mouth open like a fish swimming the murky waters of the lies that pass as history. Tell me something real. Tell me something true. I don't want your history unless I'm part of it too. So that's my poem for tonight for y'all. And I'm glad, I'm glad I didn't forget this month because I did get, I got fussed at by another poet just a little bit. They were like, people want to hear your work. And I was happy to hear that. So, you know, that was cool. All right, well, I'm going to, I feel like, I feel like if I play another Brittany Howard song, that, 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 that will magically, magically encourage and, and create a caller, maybe a poet, or maybe just somebody who has other words, like maybe there's a novelist out there who wants to, you know, read a few minutes of your novel that you've been working on in the Richmond district. Cause I think that's where all the novelists live in San Francisco. That's probably wrong, but 
that's what I, you know, I have these assumptions that probably need to be challenged. So feel free to phone up and challenge my assumptions about all the novelists living in the Richmond district of San Francisco. The number here is 415-550-0511. And let's, let's, let's listen to another song. I think, I think that, you know, when in doubt, always play music. People love music. I mean, I do. And, oh, and this is the exciting part of the show where you get to listen to me struggle with the equipment slightly. Here we go. But we Christians are not ever intentionally mischurched. Afraid. 
So the last couple of songs were by Brittany Howard. That last one was Georgia. And the one before that was called He Loves Me. So I've got something pretty special for y'all. I try to always... Uh-oh. Oh, my head... Okay, now my headphones just came unplugged, so I have no idea what you're hearing. That's okay. More equipment drama on open pages. And just in case you were wondering, I'm E.K. If you've been listening, you know that. If you just tuned in, you might not know. So I'm putting in a CD here that I haven't heard in a really long time. And I brought this one special because, you know, I have this collection of poetry CDs that I've, I've, I've gotten over, you know, since... I don't know, people started making poetry CDs, which is probably like in the 90s, right? So this is something that my friends gave me um, close to when I first moved to California. And, you know, maybe maybe you know about it, but for many, many years, except for the last few months, while the BART station has been closed, there's been a poetry gathering on Thursday nights at 16th and Mission. And so this is, and and the, the people who 
well, some of the people anyway, um, who participated in that were the CAI, and that's the California Arts Insurgency. And this is Official Bootlegs, Volume 1, and I'll just, uh, I'm just going to play it. So this is probably from around 2005, I'm guessing, um, clo maybe 2004, which was when 16th Emission started. I, I, I showed up in year two, so I missed, I missed being on this CD. I might have been, but I moved here a little too late. Um, yeah, so official bootleg volume one. So if you kind of want to know what, what 16th emission was like back, back about, you know, 15 or 16 years ago, give a listen. This is the CAI official bootlegs volume one. It is the sound of 16th emission poetry and music. Degenerative diseases. I'm a scientist. Kidney stone cancer. Discovered the cause. No cure. Discovered the cause. No cure. Here's you. Here's you. Story leaves throat spray. Twelve cheap chicken wings. Results not typical. You should purchase my machine. Two or 
Hello. Hello. Fantastic fumigation. I once strolled these paved hills. Awake but forgotten in search of cheap thrills. I long and I hunger. What burning possessed me? Why glitter impressed me to hoard and store in my clothes? Nest of thought painful pain for the present. Distorted sparkling disinvited deities. They all want a piece of me. Exotic vanity to think that 
Dutch catnip, too many bottle caps, he's stumped on my arm in his yellow eyes, his slit pupils shrink smaller than his third bridge. But he doesn't purr or wag tails of mice today, doesn't dream dog funeral, doesn't even move. Everybody. So you just listened to a few tracks from the CAI Official Bootlegs Volume 1. Flute by Greg Patillo, bass by Joe Lewis, viola by Sam Random, percussion by Ronnie Birnbaum. And the tracks you heard were Television Babies by Marchetti, A Revolutionary at Home with Her Toenail Polish by Mary Claire and Sasha and Pet Store by Mark. So that was just a, a little bit of 16th Emission flavor from, oh, like 15, 16 years ago? 17? Hard to say. You know, the years, they, they kind of flow together. So this is E.K. Keith, and you've been listening to Open Pages, a word arts show. And tune in every third Saturday of the month 